listening to a Culture Builders podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Culture Builders podcast. I'm Chris, one of the founders of the Culture Builders, and I'm joined today rather excitingly by Anis Haddad, who classes himself, amongst many things, as an executive coach and an advisor to the C-suite. However, having spoke to him for the last five minutes in preparation, I feel there is probably a good three or four contents worth of podcasts that we could churn through. So we're going to dive in because I feel that there's plenty of things that you can share with our listeners, Anise, that would be very useful. We do also need to talk about your amazing novel, and it's got a title that just draws you in, which is, and if I get this wrong, correct me, but it's The Eagle That Drank Hummingbird Nectar. Now, what an image, what a story. We'll come back to that, but first of all, good to have you on the podcast. Great to meet you, Chris. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. So we're going to dive straight into C-Suite because you, as, as we said just now, you've done an awful lot of work in that area. And we're seeing a lot of change and turmoil in, in that level of, of the organization. It'd just be good to get your initial assessment of the health and the status of the C-suite in many organizations. If you were to typify and say, these are the factors that are leaping out, what for you are the ones to talk through? I was originally a programmer many years ago. And then worked my way through as an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur, building a company, became chairman and CEO and all that. And then, and then at some point you discover everything you're doing is related to people. They're, they're human decisions, human things. The complexity is a very different complexity than when you were solving more technical type problems before or process problems. So the human element is dealing with stakeholders, shareholders, the board of directors, your colleagues on your team, the executive committee, silos that automatically grow in the company when you, as soon as you reach a certain size, people underneath these silos who are then doing their thing, customers, the market, all kinds of things. And it's all very human. And what has become clear to me, the, the reason that I find that type of work exhilarating is that once people make that shift and they discover all of a sudden that they need to become very good at the human stuff, it's transformative because they they need to let go of a lot of what they knew before and learn how to deal with other human beings and, and become uh, much more psychologically inclined, yeah. um, which is quite challenging for people. So I love that transition because it's also always linked to, almost always linked to personal stuff. People will be talking about something with their team and then they'll say, yeah, and that reminds me of this problem I've got with my teenage son at home. It always blends together. And then once they start addressing that, there's a real shift in how they look at life, how they look at their team. And I love that because it's extremely human and, and it's challenging. I agree. I'm just thinking it's not an often discussed concept. And I think you're absolutely right. It is people. But so many C-suite leaders that we see are very busy thinking about process and structure and the organization. And the people first message doesn't land. The other thing as well is even with that awareness of it's about the people, it feels like there's that balance between are you then controlling them or are you enabling them? Do you see that as a as a spread in, in the people you work with? 
That's beautiful. And that's segues from the conversation we were having a little bit ago on empowerment. Yes. Controlling people. I've got so many. So I've got my own story. Should I share my own story on that? Oh, yes, please. Real quick? We love stories. Okay. This one happened before I became a coach. I was still at the tail end of running my company and I was transitioning out. And I did a leadership retreat to try to understand better. There are things that I did well running my company and then lots of stuff I didn't do well at all. So I was going through an, through an introspective process and I did a leadership retreat. There was a section of it that was in a, in a treetop walk. You know, those things where you're yes. climbing up on, on ladders and ropes and stuff. And one exercise paired me up with a partner and you're supposed to go up at the top of this pole with a partner and then go across a rickety bridge one of you has to wear a blindfold and the other is intended to then guide you across. I was assigned the blindfold and my partner was a young lady who was scared of heights and I put the blindfold on. She, par- she, she froze and I told her, let's go, come on, let's go. We're going to make it. We'll be fine. And she, she wouldn't move. So I thought I was being empowering. And then my CEO kind of personality came out and I, <clears throat> I got in front of her even with the blindfold on, and I had her hold my harness and pulled her across, carried her a bit, stepped on the on the planks, got us both across, even though I couldn't see, and thought I was a hero, took the blindfold off. She was happy, and then the facilitator was just livid. Uh, <laughs> when we came down, she told me, what in the world was that? I said, what? I got, I got the job done. I got us both across. And she said, I'll never forget it. She said, you wasted an opportunity to experience letting someone else find their own courage and bring you across. And it, it hit home. And over the next 24 hours, I really digested it. And I, the image I had was that I was being a courage vampire, that I, yeah. was, I was kind of taking the lack of courage. And rather than Rather than giving it back and telling and demanding that she find her courage and take me across, I stepped in. So I, I, it took my sense of empowerment to a completely different level, that it's easy for us to drain. We might notice a little lack of courage. And when we notice that, we jump in and we're yes. emboldened and we move forward. So that, that really reframed that for me in terms of demanding that people find their courage. It's the well-meaning saviour, isn't it, where you think you're doing the right thing by helping and supporting, but actually all you're building is a learnt behaviour. Exactly. Very briefly, a, a few years ago, I worked with a very well-known toy company, and we were working with their board, and the CEO came back after a two-week holiday and was furious because nothing had been done. nothing, No decision taken, nothing moved forwards. And he, you know, kind of read them the riot act. And afterwards, I spoke to one of the team and they said, the reason why nothing was done is because there's no point. Because all will happen is he will come back and he will reverse every decision we've made and change everything to how he likes life to be. And there is that this empowerment isn't saying, well, I'm not there, you can do some stuff, is it? It's stepping back and staying stepped back. It's not applying your courage and your bravery because that's that's the saviour mentality and it doesn't help. 
and we were saying earlier just again we kind of we keep referencing a conversation we're not recording the importance of empowerment more so than ever because of the complexity and the mess of life right now that c-suite leaders have got too much on their plate and if they don't let go they'll never get to the strategic part they need to get to are you seeing that with your work absolutely and again it, it, it is something that at some point c-suite leaders do make that shift generally when someone comes to the to a point where they have no other choice they need to make that shift yeah. uh, something's not working and they've tried everything else they've tried the way they've always done it processes there's a story of a, a textile factory ceo that i was coaching in india 10 years ago they were having accidents and fatality and a few fatalities they had put in all the processes. They'd spent a lot of money working with international global consulting organizations. They were doing all the stuff for safety, but they still had these issues. I was coaching him and I asked him, what's your commitment to safety? He told me really high, probably nine out of 10. And then the conversation turned around, what's missing for a 10? Maybe that's why people are dying. And then he got angry with me. He said, I can't be at a 10 out of 10. It's physically impossible because that means I have to be on everybody's back and there are 2,000 people and they do stupid things. But over the next few weeks, he started thinking, what is what is 10 out of 10? And, and maybe, maybe I'm not understanding 10 out of 10 properly. What is 10 out of 10 commitment? And then there was one point where he was on the shop floor and an elderly janitor had twisted, fell and twisted his ankle. He stayed with the janitor until the safety people came. And he told me up until then, that was nine out of 10. That's what I would always do. But what I did next, he was really proud of this. He said, what I did, ne did next was a 10. The safety people said the guy was fine. He needed to go home and rest. So the CEO decided he would take him in his car, drive him home, uh, walked him into his house, made sure that his wife knew that the guy had to stay in bed for a little while. He had tea with the man and his wife. And and that became his, his ten, tapping into the human element of caring for this other person, truly caring. People start talking about it. The notion of 10 out of 10 then becomes talked about throughout the company. And the accident stopped. So... That was that shift from process and everything to human. Yeah. He wouldn't have done it if he didn't have to. If yeah. processes worked, he wouldn't have gone to that human stuff. No one loves process. Well, some project managers love process, but they're not exciting. You don't tell stories about process, do you? You tell stories about people. You have to have protagonists and antagonists, and you have to have a rich vein of humanity in there. But it's this thing about you you spoke about this as well you've, you've got i know you've got a scale around how people empower and what they expect would you mind just bringing that to life because i think it's a really simple but very fundamental piece of thinking and you should you know you should proudly share this i use scales all the time because i've noticed that we get stuck in binary thinking so this particular scale for empowerment i'll ask uh, an executive who's struggling with empowerment Ask them, well, with your team, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 means I delegate tasks and 10 is I delegate authority and results, which is the, the, the dictionary definition of empowerment, where are you with your team on a scale of 1 to 10? And they'll think about it and they'll give me a number 
and I'll ask them, what, if you asked your team, what would they say? And sometimes they do. Yeah. I'll come back and I'll say, well, I asked my team and they said, generally you're at an eight when you start, but <laughs> yes. then you come and check up on me every day and it feels like a three. So that getting that clarity or they might find then they'll, they'll tell me I've got three people that I'm at an eight with and then the rest of the team, I'm more at a two or a three and I need to get them moving up. Yeah. Or they'll come back and they'll say, I had the conversation and the people at two or three, they really like it that way. They don't want to move. So then the conversation becomes, how do I, how do I inspire them to move higher on the scale? So it, it, it's quite a rich conversation mm. on, on moving that, that scale. I love the scenario where it starts at eight and then quite quickly slides back down to a three. And that is very common. And I should imagine any CEO or C-suite leader listening to this will be nodding both in terms of a kind of agreement, but also kind of guilt as well. Because if we, you know, you've got to cut the C-suites a lot of slack in terms of the pressure they're under. They are the ones that either report to the board or the shareholders. And that's that's a tough gig, isn't it? There's very little pleasure in talking to people who are not happy that you're not spending them making the money correctly and that it's that fear of if i'm at the bottom of the organization i make a mistake it maybe costs a few thousand dollars if i'm at the top of the organization and make a mistake it maybe costs the organization so how you hold that panic of it could all go terribly wrong in abeyance or put in the checks and balances that still give people the, the empowerment because if we don't get our leaders to be better at empowerment right now, I think we're going to start to see some leaders both burn out, but also organizations struggle with the next steps because it is so complex, isn't it, where they're moving to as organizations generally. I don't think people would want to go toward empowerment if they didn't have to. It's easier to manage tasks. It's easier to delegate tasks. It's easier to create KPIs around tasks. But if you look at the, the the example I gave of the textile factory CEO, that was exactly the, the shift, is that the attitude was that we need things to control people so that we don't have these accidents. Mm. And that wasn't working. Well, it was working up to a certain point. There were still some accidents happening. But really going that extra route is empowering people to take care of themselves and to protect each other and to care for each other you only go to that if the other thing isn't working and you're lo- and people are dying or you're losing a lot of money, then that becomes a powerful shift. I suppose the question is, do we do it kind of as late as possible? And is that healthy or should we be looking at how can we make that shift yeah. sooner? You know, do, we, we, we push to empowerment, which actually seems crazy when you say it like that, it, that if you're using empowerment as a last resort, you've got to question the thinking that got you there in the first place. It's, it's almost start with empowerment then put the rest in place. Yeah, we talk about culture is belief, behaviors, tools. You can't put tools in place first and expect change. You put beliefs in place and then support them with tools. And yet, here we are. When process and structure doesn't work, we say, okay, right, I'll trust you to fix it then. <laughs> it's crazy. That's profound. And it is, I agree with you completely. I've just met so many people who go through that kind of change only as a last resort because they've gotten to where they are because they count they've depended on this more technical way of solving issues and it's worked for them it's making them good money they're they've moved up the organization they're managing lots of people 
it just they reach a ceiling at some point and and that they'll push on the ceiling trying to do what they are comfortable doing Mm. Um, that's what i that's what i run into so it's that shift that you're talking about there that it is profound it's difficult it reminds me sharing stories here a few years ago i worked with a number of police forces in the uk and one very senior leader in the police force told me how when he's interviewing officers to promote them into very senior levels, the first thing he says to them is, what are you reading? What are you reading regularly? And nine times out of ten, they will list out all the usual police literature. So there's quite a few magazines in the UK that are focused on the police forces for the police. So they're saying, I'm reading Jane's Review and I'm reading Police Monthly. He'll say, but what about people and business magazines? And they look at him blank as if to say, well, no, why do I read that? I'm a policeman. He said, but you're about to step into a role that is going to be, like you say, 100% about people. And yet you're not looking at the right literature. And it's it's a stark, stark shock, isn't it? That the adage, what gets you there won't keep you there, is massively true. That if you're constantly looking at and using resources that built you up, what you're not recognising is what's in front that's required as well. And your really clear point about it's people. It's the Bill Clinton statement, isn't it? You know, it's the economy stupid, it's the people stupid. <laughs> Look, we, we could, we're going to lose time here and I want to get to your lovely book. Now, you call it a novel. So just correct me, how do you position this? Because it feels like it's that rare thing which is both. It's both a, a book that we can use in business to help us and it's also, it is, it's written as a novel. So bring it to life. And also explain the title because it is it's a brilliant title. It was very hard to write. I didn't want to write a traditional business book. I had written two payment system, payment industry books 20 years ago. So I wanted to write it as a pure novel. There are lots of books out there. Lencioni, each of his books has a mixture of fiction and mm telling so showing and telling but i wanted to go full showing through a novel uh, which made it extremely difficult to write but and i also wanted it to be very very relevant to senior executives going through personal transformation professional transformation so it was quite challenging it's a first person narrative that follows a protagonist named aiden perez it was kind of like me, but a lot smarter than me, and he doesn't make as many mistakes. He'll make one mistake once, and he'll learn from it rather than making the same one over and over again. So that way, the novel is short as opposed to a thousand pages. <laughs> <laughs> right about what and, you know, they a, say. Yeah, and he's 50 years old, so that, that was the age I was when I was going through that transition after selling my company. Um Similar situation, former tech CEO, very different because he's also going through personal trauma. His wife uh, died in, a, in an accident. His daughter just uh, grew up and left home. He hasn't heard from her for a little while. She's working out in, on an island somewhere. And he is going through transformation. So it follows his, his transformation along with a few of his friends and colleagues, uh, also C-suite CEOs of, of other. Actually, the guy, the Texas Factory CEO I mentioned, he's in that book. He's, he's part of this, the friends there. 
Does he know? Um, Did you get his approval or are we about to get into trouble? So he's actually a mix of a few different okay. people and I cobbled them together. Nicely avoided. Um, in, in a fictional <laughs> manner. In a fictional manner. It really goes deep into the emotional transformation that we go through at that age and at that level of, of leadership. The things that we struggle with, the, the kinds of questions that, that are driving us. How do we find meaning in, in that later yeah. portion of life? All of that is in, in the book. The eagle analogy comes from a dream at the beginning of the story and a dream at the end of the book. There's a couple of things there that, that, that you kind of brought to life. One is you, you say about the kind of the, the fact that he's got different life um situations happening but i do think that what you touch on is the fact that a lot of sea level leaders as they take on those roles they're also step they've also got lives around them that are actually much more complex and messy because quite often at that point you've got elder care issues you've got children that are getting to a point where they're becoming independent and they need more support and they need help and it, it, it you know life gets messy both in professional and personal life so i think you know it's a tough time and you think about quite you know brilliantly we've got much more diversity in terms of gender in the boardroom but also quite often c-level female boardroom members are going through menopause and so there's a lot you know and, and we talk to c-level female leaders who say it's really hard because the menopause really messes you up but at the same time you're in the role that you've worked damn hard for and you want to make the best of it, so you've got that balance. The other thing is, and I think this is where your book really helps, is it can be very lonely at that level, particularly if you're a CEO. You know, you kind of you don't have a co-pilot. You can't look left and look at the pilot. So it feels like you've written a friend for a sea level. I love how you describe that. I, that's exactly it. It's because I was so lonely at that time. You, you're absolutely right. I remember a moment when we were running low on cash. We were negotiating with shareholders for cash infusion, and I was struggling, thinking, how am I going to make payroll next week? And the R&D team was in the next room. The conference room was, was right behind the wall to my office, and they were having a great meeting, and they were laughing, and I was sitting there thinking, how in the world are they laughing when I don't even know oh, how I'm going to pay pay them next week and they don't even know all this stuff is going it all worked out but yeah it's extremely lonely you touched on so many topics in in just that are all things that are in my book and the, the new book that i'm finishing now parent it, you're describing a situation that is ripe for a crucible all these pressures that mm. are coming together it creates a crucible and the way we move through that is transformative. Um, I, I, I use the analogy, I use the connection with parenthood a lot. Um, most people in management and leadership positions have slightly younger kids, maybe teenagers at, at the most. And when you look at the way these managers and leaders manage and lead, it feels a lot like they do at home. So KPIs and things like that are very much, if you do this, this, and that, here are the rewards you're going to get. 
if you miss this, this and that, we're going to take away your phone and this and that, and you got to go to bed early. It feels so similar. The energy is so similar. And then you get to those higher levels and their kids are growing up and leaving home. And all of a sudden, I can't parent the way I used to. My parenting needs to be a lot more inspiring and empowering rather than just telling what to do. And, and all these shifts are happening at the same time. And it's why you see board members with older kids have a much more empowering way. Gosh, of, you're so of, right. You're absolutely. How many times do you hear a manager say, I'm disappointed? <laughs> you never hear C-level people say that. It's just not a word that they apply. But you're right. You know, kind of, we bring in the level of parenting we're at quite often. Um, or how we experience it with others, and the, the language changes. You're not disappointed as a C level. You know, you kind of you're looking in the other direction. So you you're just showing off now with the second book, to be honest. Well, that's a, that's <laughs> you know, I haven't book, even written it's one even yet. Deeper in the second book, yeah. it's even more in the second. I have book, lots of is. lots of titles in my head, but they haven't got even a first word yet. So you know, you are finishing the second book, and as I understand it, this is designed to be a companion that kind of helps you. Interpret and apply what's in the first book. Is that correct? Yeah, the first book is very much a an internal. How do I transform? What are the things I'm struggling with with transforming and all this? So it's personal transformation. The subtitle. So it's it's um, the eagle, the drain, hummingbird, hummingbird nectar, a novel about personal transformation and business leaders. So it, it, it's really my personal transformation as a business leader. The second book is called um, Soaring Beyond Boundaries, and the subtitle is A Mastery Framework for Seasoned Leaders. So it is also about my personal transformation as a, as a seasoned leader, but it's also transforming the organization and the other people around me. Um, and, it, and it reads more as a framework rather than a novel filled with anecdotes and, and stories and things, kind of like that one, but it's not a novel. I'm looking at the clock thinking we're, we're over the, the sort of self-imposed limit of our time, which is always a shame because I love these conversations. But what I'm going to suggest is get that book finished and then let's bring you back and let's talk again because C-level leaders, the support they need, the, the things they're facing, the ways they're navigating the changing world is a huge topic, isn't it? And it's like chasing mist because it changes so rapidly. So I'm going to say let's let's pause there just remind people your your current book is available digitally on amazon yep, yep digitally kindle paperback hardcover all on amazon just as a reminder that that title it is the eagle that drank hummingbird nectar so i would definitely i know you gave me a free copy so i'm quids in there and it, it, i lovely rich language but let's come back let's talk again let's get the next bit let's look at this the framework because i do think if you're happy to share more then it's really useful for that so soon we'll talk again and thank you for your beautiful time. Lovely looking to talk. forward to it me too see you soon thank you you've been listening to a culture builders podcast 